When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast with a new episode released every single day. I'm Paul Stevenson and I thank you, as always, for hitting play. Now, today's episode is a side two, but a slightly different side two, and I'll tell you why. It's because every question I put to this rock and roll star come from you. Yes, and I'll give you some background. In January, I decided I was going to do a full album in February, basically listen to a whole album all the way through every single day throughout February. But I didn't want to listen to the classics, the obvious ones, Rumours, Appetite for Destruction, Exile on Main Street, that kind of thing. I wanted uh, albums that had been maybe long lost forgotten ones or ones that didn't get the credit they should have done at the time or or maybe albums from huge bands that everyone knows, but a a little album that sneaked in between and, and didn't get much praise. So I put it out there. You guys all got in touch with so many different ideas and and different albums and recommendations and and from that list i kind of compiled a 28 day list of uh, albums to listen to throughout february full album february and all that and uh, amongst that was one called buffalo skinners by big country now that was nominated by james miller on facebook and when i put out the calendar for the month so many people got in touch saying that that was a fantastic record one that everybody has to listen to and a definite forgotten gem so that kind of got me thinking that's that's interesting and then when the day came along and i listened to it in full and everyone else listened to it in full so many more people got in touch as well saying what a great record it was so i looked into it a bit further and realized 1993 was when it was released and actually march 1993 was when it was released so this March is 30th anniversary of the record. So I've interviewed uh, Big Country's Bruce Watson a number of times, especially for Vintage Rock Pod. He was one of the very first people I interviewed on the show back in 2020. It was episode three. If you want to hear more stories from the band in the back catalogue, then check out episode three of Vintage Rock Pod. But I've also interviewed him a couple of times when I was on the radio as well. So it's not the first time I've spoken to Bruce. So with this in mind, I reached out to Bruce and said, look, do you want to come on the show? You can answer some questions from the fans, from the listeners, from the people on social media that want to know a little bit more about this record. They love this record. It's not a huge record that everyone knows. It's a kind of forgotten gem. Would you come on? And... To my delight, he said yes immediately. So we set up a little Zoom call where I spoke to him from his house. He was just getting ready because they're out on tour now. So I put out a couple of questions on Facebook and asked uh, people to get in touch with their questions. I invited you to give me questions to put to Bruce. So basically, that's what I did. And so many people got in touch. 21 different people made comments and questions that I put to Bruce in this interview that you're about to hear. So thank you so much to everybody. I can't name you all now, but you will be named when I ask Bruce 
pose the question. Don't worry about that. So that's all to come. So I hope you do enjoy this chat with Bruce Watson, big country guitarist, who's going to dive deeper into this fantastic record. And first of all, though, if you haven't listened to The Buffalo Skinners yet, then please do so, because it was tremendous. For me, it was a real eye-opener. I know a lot about their 80s back catalogue, Steel Town and Sear and The Crossing, all that sort of stuff. That's that's huge. Huge singles. Great, great band. I've lived in Scotland for 20-odd years, so very much on my radar. But the 90s stuff did certainly pass me by. I wasn't too aware of it. So I was really, really delighted when I found the Buffalo Skinners and it is a top, top notch album. If you haven't listened to it yet, then please do give it a chance and uh, definitely listen to this interview to get a bit more information about what happens behind the making of it. Now, we delve into individual songs and, and how they came around and lyrically and that sort of thing. We go about what happened before this album. So leading into it, we talk about the live stuff. We talk about the headspace for the band. We talk about the reasons why uh, the American release was different to the UK release and, and so much more as well. I hope you really enjoy this deep dive into the world of the Buffalo Skinners by Big Country. And as I said, all the questions and all the comments and everything come from you. And if you did send one in, then hopefully you'll get a nice name check too. So please do enjoy this interview with Big Country's Bruce Watson. So my first question then, Bruce, is from Richard Harrison. He said this, he felt that No Place Like Home was a step too far in the wrong direction after Peace in Our Time, but the Buffalo Skinners is a hard and heavy record, probably the best sounding big country album that captures the power of the band's legendary live performances. So take us back to those uh, two albums before this one then that we're going to talk about. What was happening with the band on those previous albums and why do you think that they didn't land as well as they should have? No Place Like Home, um, which was album number five. Um, Mark wasn't in the band at the time, um, our original drummer. <coughs> um, although Mark actually played on the album, he came back and did it as a session. And it was kind of a little bit dis- disjointed. Um, because Mark wasn't in the band, the songs were kind of written in various demo situations. And they were never really rehearsed as a band anyway. Um, the album, it's, it's not a bad album, but it sounds like it was recorded with, you know, by four or five different bands, you know. It was just a little bit disjointed. Um, so that's probably the reason that um, the chaps, you know, a big fan of the album, you know. But uh, when we did Buffalo Skinners, Mark was still not in the band. In fact, Mark, Mark, Mark never played on the Buffalo Skinners album, but we that album was demoed with, Tony Stewart and myself um, actually sitting in a studio playing them together. Um, <clears throat> and we've got Simon Phillips to play drums on it, um, which he, he did in two days and did a fantastic job. And then after that, uh, Mark, Mark came back to the band anyway. But I think that's the reason, you know, no place like home, it's quite a disjointed. There was no cohesion, there was no continuity just because the way it was. The way it was written, basically, you know, and we, we didn't have Mark in the band, so it was a bit bitty. <laughs> so in terms of the, the, the time after that record, I mean, um, did the band split up at this point? Because the, the label had, had released you as well, hadn't they? So what was it that pulled you back together? What what made you decide to, to go again and, and give it another go? The band was always, well, for the first three albums, we were kind of uh, a close-knit unit. Um, and at one point, I think it was after album number four, which was Peace in Our Time, um, Stuart left the band and Mark decided to take one extra work. And then two weeks later, Stuart went, oh, I made a stupid mistake. I'm coming back to the band. And, Ma- and Mark had kind of booked himself out to work with people like uh, Midge and Fish and stuff like that. So 
And obviously, he, he couldn't let those people down. So, you know, we were in a bit of disarray for a little while. We were kind of drummerless, you know, for, for, for a bit. Um, so, I mean, that, that's that's the reason, I think. You know, I mean, Mark was a, such a big part of how we worked in the studio. And he was sorely missed, especially by me. Indeed, indeed. Quick question that, that leads us on to something that John Clark said. He actually says Simon Phillips' drumming on the record is outstanding. What did he bring to the studio that was different to Mark? A red drum kit. <laughs> he was setting the kit up. We did it at Rack Studios. We produced it ourselves along with Chris Sheldon. And I remember Simon bringing his kit in. I think it was, I don't know, I can't remember if it was Yamaha, Tama, but it was beautiful red, red, bright fire engine red kit. I went, that's a beautiful, beautiful kit, Simon. He went, yeah, I've got it to match my Ferrari. I went, <laughs> right on, man, you know. He, he, he did the whole album. I sent him the demos, and basically the demos was drum machine that, you know, Stuart and I would program with a little drum machine. Um, and so that's all we had for him to reference. And he came along and did the whole, whole album in two days. And it's like, wow, you know. And then when Mark heard that he went that's exactly what I would have played anyway so you know, give me my job back <laughs> <laughs> fantastic <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned there about um, producing the record yourself again this is something from uh, Michael Saunders he said the Buffalo Skinners is such a brilliant album gritty so well produced it's my go-to album when I yearn to hear Stuart's voice and guitar um, yeah. you guys as you said you, you produced the record yourselves how was that as an experience for you then was it liberating getting to put your own ideas and things in yeah well what happened is we, we got signed up um, to a label called Compulsion, which was run by Chris Briggs, who signed us originally to Phonogram. Um, and when Chris came on board, you know, I would keep him up to date with the, the demo situation and send him, at that time it was cassettes and dats, you know, and he kind of liked the way things were going. And we, we discussed it and he said, well, maybe... You've worked with Chris Sheldon before. We did a single with Chris Sheldon and um, and Tim. Tim, Tim, it'll come to me. Anyway, <laughs> and Tim was away working with Tears for Fears at the time. Uh, and Chris was still available. And I thought, well, you know, Chris was the engineer, but he was, you know, he was a great ideas guy as well. So Briggsy said, you know, like, maybe Chris, Chris and yourself, co-produce it, you know, let's go in the studio, see what happens. And, you know, Chris Briggs would pop his head in a bell of day and say, no, this is sounding really great. This is, you know, just continue, you know. So it, it was it was great, you know, kind of co-producing it ourselves. And we knew Rack inside out anyway because we'd done a lot of recording at Rack Studios and we knew Mickey, Mickey most and we, we felt comfortable there. And, you know, when we, when we first started doing the crossing and the first recordings, obviously we needed help, we needed a producer or a referee or whatever. But by that point, you know, we were about six albums down the line and we kind of knew what we wanted to do, you know. So Chris Briggs put a lot of trust trust in us. Uh, next question's from Gordon Skinner. He says, it's the noisiest album by the greatest rock band I've ever seen. A slightly different direction by Big Country. From start to finish, it doesn't stop. Now, was that predetermined that you'd went into the studio with the idea of making a big, hard, heavy, strong record? Yeah, well, we knew it was going to be just the way the demos and the writing were going. Um, like I say, Tony, Stuart, myself were in the studio, uh, a little place called Audiocraft in Dunfermline. And 
just really, you know, hand, the three of us were hands on, you know, um, writing together. Um, so we, we kind of knew which way we were going. And for some reason, the songs were just getting heavier and heavier. <laughs> and I don't know if that's because, you know, that was just after the whole grunge thing had happened, you know, and, you know, it's just just the way we were at the time, you know, we were getting back into loud guitars again uh, and we were just rocking out and, you know, a lot of it was 4-4, four, four, you know, it's just the way it was, just the way we were writing back then. It was, it was great. Fantastic. Uh, Richard Metcalf then, he says, the big man really let his guitar hero out on this one. Love this album, but alone has a sad degree of poignancy given what happened later. Now, do you feel that way about the song as well, Bruce? We've all, Stuart always had a knack. The band would always do the music. And sometimes the music that we would do was very uplifting. And Stuart had this knack of putting really sort of dark lyrics to something that was really uplifting, you know. It was just a a weird thing that he, he would do. Um, he's, he's done it quite a lot. So we kind of expected a lot of that kind of lyrics on, on the album. But it was just a thing Stuart did, you know. Sometimes his lyrics were, you know, a bit obtuse, fantasy. Some of them were black and white about, you know, things that were happening in the news at the time. Some of them were ideas from books, and then there'd be other things that, you know, whatever was in his head at the time, you know. Uh, here's one from Joe Kay, who's in Milwaukee. He says he's awful at interpreting lyrics. Uh, Selling America is such a brilliant track, but what is it about? What was Stuart trying to say on this one? I haven't got a clue. <laughs> I think I think he'd never been watching. There was a movie. Um, oh, it was a Sean Connery movie at the time. Um, I can't remember what it was called now. But the, uh, it was quite influenced by movies and, and books. Was it called Rising Sun or something like that? Sean Connery? I think it was called Rising Sun. Um I think it, it took a lot of inspiration for that for that um, movie. There you go. There you go. I can't tell you exactly what for what sense or sense what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a great song. We'll leave it at that. Um, here's one that a lot of people have been in touch about: Stevie T, Nathan Fenton, Justin Keeney, and Marv from the podcast and Pods Like Us. They all want to know why the superb title track wasn't included on the final album. Because at that time, vinyl was still on the go. Um, so you had to, you had so many minutes you could do on each side of the vinyl. Um, and that's the reason that Buffalo Skinners wasn't on it because it wasn't, even, even though it was the, the title track, it wasn't in keeping with the rest of the, the music. It's, Buffalo Skinners is a very slow acoustic sort of song. And we just felt that it, it, it wouldn't fit on the vinyl. But I mean, obviously, it was on the CD and everything else that came out. But when you do a vinyl record, you're limited to, to time, obviously. Otherwise, the, the quality suffers. But we tended to do that with a few albums. The, the first album uh, was The Crossing, and we had a song called The Crossing, but we never put that on the album either, you know. So it was just one, one of those things that we, we tended to do. Oh, interesting. So, what is it about the, the title of that track then that, that lent itself to the album in, in itself, in its entirety? Oh, we just we, that, well, we just thought about different album titles, and we, we looked at the titles of some of the songs um, that we'd recorded, uh, and like I say, alone. We didn't want to call the album alone, mm-hmm. 
Um, so we just kind of felt the Buffalo Skinners was a, a good title to, to go with for the album just one that kind of stuck out you know definitely uh, Ned Itchum he says his favourite track on the record is Seven Waves that one was written by Bruce I think what's the story behind it how did you come up with that one the music for Seven Waves at the time I was living um, on the coast I was living practically next door to Manny Charlton from Nazareth uh, so Manny was helping me set up my studio at home and he had a, obviously had a home studio as well so I would go around to, to his place and you know so I went around to Manny's one day and he was working on my my computer and uh, he basically he blew it up <laughs> <laughs> so while uh, I was waiting for spare parts to come for this little computer that I had he said well you know just come in my studio and I had ideas for some musical ideas I needed to get down fast, you know. So Manny says, right, come in here and start, you know, we'll start recording you. So Seven Waves was me and Manny kind of just working together. Um, he engineered it and sort of co-produced the idea that I had and played a bit of slide on it. And we, we came up with a, well, actually it was my music, but Manny kind of got the best out of me. Um, so I ended up just recording this track which didn't have a, a title I, had, I, had, I managed to sing a couple of melodies on the top of it they didn't mean anything but they were just there for they were just placeholders and then I just uh, did the usual just took up the Stuart and went yeah that's great and he took it away and put his lyrics to it you know and so that's how Seven Waves came about Great stuff uh, Here's one from Paul Lewis and Mark Hay They're both asking about The One I Love They said it was released as a single in America Got a lot of airplay Charted quite high on the rock charts as well But they both want to know Why it wasn't released as a single in the UK or Europe um, Well we were With a compulsion in the UK um, And we were with Fox Records in America um, As in 20th century Fox side of a label So I mean it happens a lot uh, if you're on one label in the UK, it doesn't mean to say you're going to be on the same label in, in America or even Europe. So they tend to just put out what they think is suitable for that territory. Um, and they, they chose the one I love. And you know, I was quite happy for that to, to come out as well, you know. I, I guess maybe they thought a loan might have been too heavy or whatever, but uh, they went with that and it did okay, did okay there. Um, speaking of America, Carl Kusumano, apologies if I got that wrong, he says the US version of the record had the bass increased, which he says made the entire album sound so much better. Um, he says listening to the US and the UK versions is a distinct difference. Why was that, yeah. Bruce? The reason being um, the American release got released months later there wasn't simultaneous and I think well what was ago uh, George Marino came in to remaster it for America and the sound if you play them if you A, B them play, maybe play one of the songs back to back it's quite evident that the US version uh, in my opinion is far superior it, it does sound a lot different a lot the mix is the same it's the same master tapes it's just been uh, just been mastered differently and uh, I mean, I've, I've noticed that quite a lot, especially way back in the eighties. You know, you get into a, a cab in America, and they've got the, the radio on. And I don't know if it's to do with EQ or compression. It just American radio at that time sounded out of this world. It was amazing, you know. <laughs> Fantastic. Maybe it's the difference between I don't know American engineers and British engineers. I don't know. 
<laughs> well, the American one did a good job on that one then. Um, here's Eddie Dempsey. He says the 1993 gig in Dublin's Olympia was absolutely rocking. I mean, the place was vibrating. Did Big Country ever record a concert in Ireland? Yeah, I mean, there must, there must have been some recordings, whether they got released or not, but there's probably been a few recordings that were made out there. Um, whether they were released or not, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. But you do a lot of radio stuff out there. Or you do a lot of gigs out there and you kind of find out later that was recorded by, you know, whatever radio station. You never get to hear it because you, you, you've moved out of that country and you, you've moved somewhere else. So I, I can't on, honestly answer that 100%, but I think there, I think there would have been. Must be something somewhere. Uh, there's a lot of people talking about the live tour from this era as well, about how explosive it was, how loud it was. I've got Kenny Henderson said there, the live shows at this time were rocking Long Way Home Live at the Barrowlands is one of his life highlights. Uh, and Stephen Berlin said, um, he says, I saw Big Country 27 times with Stuart and the best tour was the Buffalo Skinners one. Now, did you feel it yourselves? Was the energy really ramped up when you went out on stage during this era, during this time yeah. with these songs? I, I, I tend to agree. I think the Buffalo Skinners, you know, apart from the, obviously the early days, but I think the Buffalo Skinners too. But when Mark came back on board, um, it, it clicked again. And I just think that those are some of the best shows that we've ever done. And at the time we were doing a lot of the Buffalo Skinners album, as well as the, the earlier stuff as well. And they, they just seemed to fit, you know. And just having Mark back was a, an absolute joy. I, I just felt like we were firing on all four cylinders again. The band back in business. It's your drummer that makes the band, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Justin Keeney, he says that this was your best album for me and seemed to be a great period for the band. What's your favourite memory of this time? Uh, oh, loads, loads of great memories, you know. Well, obviously, doing the album, even though it was Simon Phillips and not Mark, but actually doing the album. Um, and we just seemed to, we just seemed to be on the road quite a lot. We, we, were, we toured America as well on that album, and we went really toured America since the early days. So we did, we did a lot of tours America, Canada, and we were in Europe a hell of a lot. It was just one of those albums that we, we just go give them a great opportunity to, to to tour the world practically, you know. The touring side of things was great. Yeah, always is, always is. Uh, Andrea Thigpen, she just wanted to say, tell Bruce he rocks, loved them from the beginning, was a dream come true to meet him and Mark. Love from Canada, which is a really nice thing to say from Andrea. But you have uh, roots in Canada as well, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I was, I was born in uh, Timmins, Ontario, way back in uh, 1961. I was actually born in the same town that uh, Shania Twain was born, but obviously... You know, probably 20 years apart. <laughs> so what brought you back to, to Dunfermline then? Uh, the Queen Mary. <laughs> Fair enough. My, my, my parents emigrated, obviously, but um, my, my, my father was a, a gold miner out there. Eh? And um, I, I just don't think my, my mother took to, took to it, you know. So they, they stuck it for a couple of years then, came home on the Queen Mary. So and I ended up back back in Dunfermline. So I'm, I'm the only, only Canadian, you know family of Scottish people. There you go. Uh, and a couple of off-topic questions that came in too. Uh, Mike Lamens, he said, The Seer, the title track, how did Kate Bush come to sing on it? And did, did you get to work with her in the studio at all? Yeah, I mean, we, we kind of discussed it with Robin Miller, who was the, the producer at the time. And it, 
we'd been listening to a lot of Kate Bush stuff, and I think it was the Dreaming we were listening to quite a lot. And the Seer was kind of had that same sort of vibe as one of the songs in the Dreaming, and and we're all sitting, you know, we probably Kate Bush can get Kate Bush on this, it's, you know, it's a laugh over the, over the dinner table, and Robin, you know, oh, you know I know Kate Bush, or I know people that work, you know, or people or whatever, and. If you don't ask, you don't get. So Robin sent off a, a cassette to Kate Bush and she agreed to do it. And she turned up at the studio um, at the power plant in Wilsden. And she was in the studio for five hours. And we could not believe what she was doing. She completely rearranged all these vocal parts. And we were just blown away, just watching her doing it. We were in the control room upstairs looking down and uh, she was in the studio. And it was just absolutely amazing, you know. And I, I kind of felt ashamed when the album came out because Robin Miller did a, a great mix of the record. And the, the, the song, The Seer, was almost like a duet with, with Stuart and Kate, the way it was done. But the album got remixed later on. And I think they kind of dumbed their vocals down a bit. And I knew that The Seer was almost going to be a single, but it was like seven minutes long or something. And the, the label tried to edit it down, and the edits just wouldn't work. And then obviously it got remixed. So, but you know, I think a lot more could have been made of Kate's vocal during the, the new mix. But you know, it's, sometimes these things are out of your hands. But it, it was just amazing, you know, watching, watching, and listening to her working. Absolute genius. 100% agree. And uh, what last one from Michael McCauley. He says, Steel Town is my favourite big country album. How come I can't find any demos of the tracks released at all, not even crappy, hissy cassette versions? Because there was only crappy, hissy cassette versions ever demoed. Uh, because The Crossing was quite successful and all those songs were written years in advance, once we'd done The Crossing, once we'd done all the touring, it's the record company said, well, now basically time to do your second album. And it's like, oh, God, we haven't written anything. So the four of us ended up using a, a rehearsal room up in Edinburgh, uh, and we never demoed anything for that album. But all we had was a, a cassette, a little boombox kind of thing, and we stuck that in front of Mark's bass drum, and we used that to get the ideas down. And we never went into a studio to demo, demo any of the songs. We ended up just taking all the ideas across the um, Sweden, across the Polar, which was Abba's studio, and we just um, worked on them in the studio. So we never demoed anything for Steel Time. Well, there you go. So thank you very much for for chatting about these albums and your music's fantastic. Uh, You're a busy boy as always. I've caught you just before you go back out on tour. There's big touring plans again for this year, March, April, May, early June. It's the 40th anniversary of The Crossing. So tell us about these shows. Well, um... Like you say, it's the 40th anniversary of The Crossing. We're going to go out, we, we do the, the album in its entirety, but we, we don't do it in sequential order. Um, and obviously we play a lot of other songs as well, so it, it doesn't make sense to do it in sequential order because it, it just the, the, the set list would be dynamic if we were to do it like that. Um, so we're going to go out and we've got our special guest as a... Um, uh, Kirk Brandon, who's bringing out uh, Spirit Destiny. Um, so that's going to be great fun because uh, Kirk and I go back a long way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, you know, I think 
people are going to come out. They're going to see two 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 good bands. It's going to be a great great night, great tour. And like I say, you'll get all the all the songs from the crossing uh, plus a lot more. Fantastic. And you're right across the UK on all these dates. I think there is some, some are sold out already. Uh, there are some tickets available for some venues. So what's the best way to, to find out about more information on this? Um, I don't know how you, how you go about doing this nowadays. And I think you go online and buy tickets. I've never, I've never done that. Um, well, I just go online, I guess, and uh, buy a ticket, come along and, have a damn good time. Well, I'm just getting myself ready. We're going out to Holland as well in a, a couple of weeks. We're going out there for a week. We've got a, a week's worth of celebrate shows out there to do. Um, we've been trying to get out, out there for ages, uh, but because of the COVID thing, they kept getting put back, back. So we're now getting to get out there and hopefully we'll get out to Germany as well, get around Europe at some point. But uh, it's the UK we're going to do first. Absolutely. And you've got some festival dates in the summer as well. And I noticed that you've got an interesting one. I've never heard of this festival, The Devil's Arse. That sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> The Devil's Arse. My, my, my son, Jamie, that's in the band, he keeps creasing up a bit of that one. But what is it? Is it, is it a, we play in a curry house that night. <laughs> or I've never even heard of the place, but it sounds like it's going to be great. Absolutely does. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you again, Bruce. Uh, thank you so much for your time chatting about Buffalo Skinners and answering all those questions for me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. The brilliant Bruce Watson there. A big thank you to everybody that got in touch and sent me a question or a comment about the album, which we turned into questions. It was fantastic to put all those to Bruce, and he really, really kindly accepted the invitation to come on and talk more about a fantastic record. Now, the band are out on tour. If you haven't got tickets yet, then do check local venues near you because it's a fantastic 40th anniversary of the Crossing Tour that they are doing. Just as Bruce said, definitely worth checking that out. And as I said as well, I've interviewed Bruce for Vintage Rock Pod earlier on in the series, very, very early on. Episode three, in fact, you can go back to, I think it was October 2020. So please do find that out. And I've given that a listen as well. It would be wonderful if you did. Anyway, that's it for this week's big interview show. Then I hope you enjoyed that. I've got more big guests coming your way every single Monday. Big interview shows every single Monday. I've got another Rock and Roll Hall of Famer already in the can to bring you. Uh, a lead singer of a brilliant 60s, 70s kind of American rock and roll band. That's coming up very soon as well. And I've got some British rock and rollers coming in the pipeline as well. So much good stuff. Plus, a daily episode is released on the Tuesday through to Sunday, short five-minute episodes where we talk about what happened on this day in rock. I call those This Day Rock. So please do subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod. Find it on your podcast app or player of choice. Hit subscribe and you'll get a brand new episode every single day from Vintage Rock Pod. And while we're speaking about subscribing, get onto YouTube as well and you can see the full video I did with Bruce talking about all this sort of stuff as well as all the other interviews I do and short clips and everything else. It's all on the Vintage Rock Pod channel on YouTube. YouTube. Hit subscribe, watch the videos, don't skip the ads. That'd be fantastic. Anyway, I'll be back same time next week to do it all over again on the big interview show. And I'll be back tomorrow with This Day Rocks. But until then, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 